0: Hey, everybody, welcome back. Besties are back, and it's a Bestie SPACs giving. Congratulations <laughs> to the Queen of Quinoa, his second company, David Freeberg, announces today, hours before the taping of this special Thanksgiving pod, that he is taking Metro Mile public through a SPAC, and that Bestie C, and here is the quote. That as only Chamath can tweet, Buffett had Geico. I pick Metro Mile. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. I would just like to say. That's how you move markets. Yeah. Uh, LeBron James <laughs> has three rings. <laughs> uh, Freeberg, tell us what is Metro Mile. Uh, and um Well, this isn't a self-promoting podcast, is it? I mean No, like- but no, but I think it's just. You know, it's your second company. I
1: I started the company in 2011 when I was running Climate, when I was the CEO there. And, um, you know, we were, Climate was offering insurance at the time. We learned a lot about the insurance markets and figured like, hey, you know, telematics or connecting cars to the internet is going to be a big deal. And we're going to be able to completely change the auto insurance industry. So we set up this company. I was the chairman from the founding uh, in 2011 and uh you know been uh been chairman and I've been an active investor in the business in every round since then um so the business has built some uh you know really compelling uh, value proposition for customers and you know it's got really good unit economics and it's um you know needed its last round of capital to get profitable and it turns out you know as we were thinking about that this summer that a SPAC was uh, a really good path for the business given the inflection point it's at um and, and the so, basic
0: premise of the business is instead of paying for insurance by month or time period the innovation here is you pay per mile
1: yeah insurance today is like you know you fill out a form and you get a price for insurance and you pay that rate for six months of coverage but you know depending on when you're driving and how much you're driving you should be paying a different price right so we we kind of changed the model to a rate per mile and so if you don't drive you save you know, so the average customer doesn't drive a lot with Metro Mile, they save 47% over what they were paying with like Geico or progressive reassurance. Um, and
0: you do that with that ODB port? It's like ODB yeah, the little port plug-in
1: device. And increasingly, yeah. we're actually doing it directly by connecting to cars, uh, direct through uh, Ford and a couple other big automotive OEMs now have this ability to send the data directly out of the car because they're all internet connected now. So... Um, so that allows us to just basically, you know, see how many miles you're driving and the rate per mile is what we bill you each month times the number of miles you drove on your on your car. And,
0: and you you didn't mention how you drive. I think that was a controversial concept for a while. You know, if you speed, if you. Right. Weave, no, that, that's then a, road, that's is that on the roadmap? Or no?
1: Yeah, that, that, that is part of it today. But frankly, 70% of the price difference you get uh, in auto insurance is from the number of miles you drive. And only 30% is really in this variance around behavior. You know, most people are generally pretty good drivers, so believe it or not. So the, the real variance in terms of, you know, your risk to the insurance company is how many miles you drive. So that really is the predominant factor. So if we can accurately track that. Now, what's interesting is like in a world of autonomous cars where you're like turning on the car to be autonomous or fully self-driving at some point, you know, it's on and off. You should be getting a different rate for those miles. Right. So if the car is if your Tesla is on autopilot on the freeway, that should be safer than you on the freeway you shouldn't be paying as much for insurance. Ah, even better. So you, can, you can kind of think about how this moves into a world where everything is dynamically priced and dynamically built.
0: Usage that, priced, yeah.
1: Usage priced, and, that, and and also fair. So you know, if you're a good driver and you're driving well, or if you're using autonomous features, you shouldn't pay as much. And ultimately that translates uh, you know, into a truly kind of more dynamic service. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the world has to go because those low mileage drivers or those good drivers or those drivers using autonomous features should be paying considerably less. So they'll start using our service and that'll force the other guys to raise their rates. And it creates this huge, you know, kind of market moat. Um, Great. And we're in, the, we're, in the, we're in the very early days. I mean, it's like the first inning still. So, we're, you know, we're, we're just getting going.
0: Chamava, you chose to do a pipe um, uh, with the SPAC. Explain to the audience what a pipe is for people who don't know and what you loved about Metro Mile. Sure. Um, I think the, the uh,
2: what, a, what is a pipe? A pipe is a, a, private investment in a public enterprise. And basically what that means, um, is that, uh, you're making the round bigger. Right. So it's kind of like Sequoia does your Series A and invests 10 million. I would come in and put another 10 million. And now your Series A is 20 million. Um, same terms as the, um, as Sequoia's round, except you're now just grossing up the amount of capital. Um, why are, why is that helpful? Well, what it does is it allows somebody to price the deal. So in this case, David's SPAC sponsor priced the deal, did the diligence and decided to underwrite Metromile at that price. And then they came to me and said, Hey, um, you know, do you want to come and join this round? Essentially. And, um, I got to know the business. Um, a lot of things that David said basically are true. The, the thing that I will say is like, you know, everybody talks about, um, the value of machine learning, right? And data oriented learning. Um, the most obvious thing that you can do is if you learn on top of a huge subset of data, Especially out in the real world, like driving data or any other kind of information is you should be taking risk on top of it. And this is why sort of these next generation insurance companies to me are so interesting because it's probably where you're going to see, um, machine learning, um, be used at just massive, massive scale because you're just going to reprice risk and make it, as David said, much more dynamic. So anyways, they showed it to me. I, um, I really like the The product, the metrics are uh, really amazing, and so um, I joined. It was great. I'm really excited for. I'm really excited for uh, Freedberg.
0: Yeah, congratulations. Great,
1: Jamal and I have never worked on anything together, so it's awesome. We're doing awesome. Uh, our first project okay. here on the uh, All In podcast together.
0: All right. Well, so it Saks, sounds
3: uh, it, it sounds like a brilliant idea, and I'm just pissed that I'm not part of it. <laughs>
1: I know. I'm feeling.
3: Good. I mean, I read. Do we get like, like two redo besties. here for me oh, and really. Sachs? Yeah, I, J- Jason. Do you know about this?
0: I, I don't know anything. I get. I'm the last to know. We're both cut out of it. First of all, we're both cut out of it.
3: You, I need you, to get you, my beak wet. You two <laughs> we got the wet. Our I beaks.
2: can't get
1: my beak wet.
2: You two, you two narcissistic besties have been have been running around yeah. all week, touting every single unicorn you I guys miss, have I been of. I missed my, my
1: allocation <laughs> in Robin Hood. I missed my allocation <laughs> no. in Uber or Uber in, or whatever. Yeah.
0: All right. New bestie yeah. rule. New bestie rule. Everybody gets a slice, even a little tasty poo. Everybody gets their beak wet. like the, the word, old neighborhood.
1: Okay? Like the old neighborhood. Just you know, a little yeah. kickback,
0: a little share. Let's, Jason, why
2: don't you start an Angelus syndicate for every all-in podcast listener?
0: Yes. All-in podcast syndicate. It will be on thesyndicate.com. I love on- the Angelus, but yeah. Okay, yeah. We'll do it. We'll do thesyndicate.com slash all-in podcast, and then... We'll aggregate all these uh, subscribers can, can and i just take say, a 20% carry and you guys can suggest ideas. Can a I great just say, no, we, we'll, do,
2: we'll do zero carry and we'll allow all the listeners to participate in our deals, which I think would be pretty cool.
0: Um, yeah. Listen, I've- uh, I I've love won- how every time you loop my business into this, whether it's podcasting or syndicates, you take out the money and the profit. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell you what, I have an idea. How about we SPAC this week in startups Jason, and uh, you do it for no participation? I'm
2: the, I'm the father of growth. <laughs> you know how you grow? By making things free. <laughs> <laughs> you want to maximize demand just make it free. Uh, by the way, uh on this topic, uh Saxi Poo had this incredible tweet this week which was basically like, "Wow, this is like my 95th uh, unicorn that went that filed to go public. I mean, literally every <laughs> single unicorn that filed this week to go public. Sachs was an angel investor, which is incredible. Oh, says a goodies as an investor. But the best follow up tweet was Zach Weinberg, the co-founder of Flatiron Health, whose tweet was, "I just want to congratulate myself on nothing for having not been a part of any of these companies." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I would like to <laughs> congratulate myself for making no bets and taking no uh, risk and getting
1: uh, no reward. <laughs> no, I, thought,
2: I thought Zach's tweet was the best.
1: Zach, don't you find it tiring, like all these investments that you've made? Like, don't these guys call you and want to do meetings and chat all the time? I mean, you know, this has well, got to be like a, a huge amount of effort, right?
3: Well, not, not, not I mean, it, not really. You just really. put the money I mean, in and turn around? Well, you know, if you're not on the board, your obligation is basically to respond when somebody asks you for something. And as an angel investor, it is a little different when you're actually like leading around and you're a board member. Um, I I was making these investments back in 2012, 2013. That's when these seeds were planted. Right.
0: These were 50K, 100K, 250K checks, right? So the responsibility is proportional to the dollar amount.
3: So somewhere a little bigger than that, actually. But yeah? um, oh. I, I, um, I mean, I've written, che- I, I've written checks, you know, seven-figure checks in some of these companies.
1: Well, Sachs, according to your personal balance sheet that we got from your accountant this week, yeah, Phil uh, you sent it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We see
0: here a transaction for House. Is it true you did the Series B of House? The entire Series B?
1: Dollar no. That's, That's what I heard. There. No, no. I heard it was
0: no. you led the Series yeah. B.
3: No, no, NEA led that round. I mean, I invested a lot as an individual. I did co-lead the series B or C of Adapar. That was one that I did as an individual.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, that's going to be um,
2: huge. I have no idea what that company is, but that sounds awesome. They, they manage
0: do, <laughs> funds. They do portfolio management software. <laughs> software.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's coming up on, you know, 100
2: million. I'm, that just, guys, totally I'm, just, I'm yeah. just kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Uh, let's start the pod, J. Cal. Where are we going to start?
0: Well, I mean, I
1: think... Now that we've all self-promoted... Exactly. Well, I I'm, yeah. I'm just
3: happy to hear that, that Jason was cut out of your deal as much as me. When I <laughs> yeah. when when better. I read about it on Twitter, I'm like, I better not be the only best to cut out of this thing.
0: You're right. You're totally You're right. right. You're right. It is it is yeah. getting awkward now because people who watch this podcast assume that we do everything together. Like literally, they're like, "Well, you guys go grocery shopping together. You go on vacation together. You guys live in the same together. TikTok house." Yeah, yeah. It's th- yeah. that's not how it works. Um, I I think the first thing we should we should talk about is just this amazing uh, moment in time when, because of science, you know, and this podcast started during the pandemic, we have had, as predicted by Freeberg, who gets to take two victory laps. He said by the end of the year, we'd have vaccines and they would have, because of this mRNA, if I remember correctly, 90, 95% efficacy. And sure enough, the week after Trump uh, wins, I'm sorry, lo- loses. Sorry, Sachs, he lost actually. Um, the week <laughs> after Trump lost, <laughs> I know you didn't vote for him. Um, the week after he lost, Moderna, a uh, Pfizer, then the next week, Moderna, and then the next week, Oxford, and I understand Johnson and Johnson is about to announce something. And all of these have 90 to 95 percent efficacy, and that there are going to be 40, 50, and 60 million doses in December, January, and February just from the first two in America alone. So Friedberg, if you were to put a number on when herd immunity hits, because probably 20 or 30 percent of people have had it, 20 or 30 percent of people have um, some natural immunity. How long is this going to take? And could we be out of, be doing this from, you know, a Warriors game next year? When, when are we going to be able to do this in person? I think, and, I and don't know if it was, test?
1: yeah, I don't know if it was Fauci or someone that's closer to the operation shared that they do think they can get 70% of Americans immunized by May. So, May. um, by wow. May, yeah. So. <clears throat> You know, if you'll remember a few podcasts ago, I think I I tried to explain a big part of the budget that went into this Operation Warp Speed was to parallelize production of these vaccines while they were being tested. And so we've been scaling up the production and the manufacturing of these. And if they weren't going to work, we're just going to crash them, right? A couple billion dollars. Who cares? It's a good option for the American people. So we've got a ton of doses that have been produced. It's about packaging and distribution now. And that's, you know, supposed to be kind of underway with the plan to be, that on December 11th or 12th, when they uh, give the emergency use authorization, these doses start showing up uh, in so care we facilities. We went all in.
0: We basically went all in blind. Like we just shoved the chips in and said, we're going to make these vaccines, even you know, it's, if they're it's not more like,
1: it's more like a, a spray and pray, um, angel investment portfolio, you know, we, we bought uh, a but we bought like four different things or five different things, we made a bets in all of them, and hope that one of them pays off. And it turns out they're all going to pay off. So you know, or, or, or a chunk of them are going to pay off. And we get to have them ready, you know, in time to kind of make a difference here. Now, all that being said, if you look at the case numbers in the US right now, we could be as high as 30% of the American people have already been infected with coronavirus based on some estimates. So, as of the June 30th um, paper that was published from those dialysis patients, and they did a pretty good statistical interpretation of looking at antibodies in people's blood, they estimate 10% of the American population was infected by coronavirus as of June 30th. And then if you look at the number of people that have been infected since then, and you apply the similar sort of multiple that you would assume based on tests, you know, there, there's an estimate that we could already be at up to 30% of the US population has been infected. Wow. Um, and,
0: and therefore immune.
1: And they're theoretically mostly immune, let's just say that, right. Okay. And so sure, there's anecdotes and so on. But yeah, let's just say generally, yes, immune. And so you combine that with these vaccines starting to roll out, and we get, you know, a, a pretty kind of comfortable position in terms of the pandemic in, in hopefully a couple of months here. And that's why the market's going nuts. And that's why everyone, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I got some conference invites this last week for conferences for next year that have been canceled this year and were being put on hold. Yeah. So people are starting to to lean in For
0: what time frame? Third quarter or fourth quarter?
1: Uh, Summer, July.
0: Yeah. So people are now assuming that and they're booking hotel spaces based on it. That is extraordinary. Sachs, you shared this New York Times story. Why don't you summarize it for the audience? And I'd love to get your thoughts in addition to this as to what this recovery might look like if, in fact, we have more vaccine than we need and even you know a reasonable number of Americans take it and don't believe that it's a conspiracy theory by Bill Gates to control and the Illuminati and all that stuff.
3: Yeah, I mean, this New York Times story is pretty remarkable. It's called Politics, Science, and the Remarkable Race for a Coronavirus Vaccine. This came out, I think it just came out today in the New York Times, Actually, sorry, it's published. It published November 21st, updated November 24th. Um, And it's pretty remarkable. It describes the effort by Operation Warp Speed, by the administration, by Pfizer, by Moderna. Kind of gives you the the behind-the-scenes play-by-play. And reading the article, you have to come away thinking that the Trump administration did a pretty good job with this whole uh, Warp Speed project. Um, I don't know if the New York Times... Uh, realizes that it's making the Trump administration look so good, or maybe <laughs> they don't care anymore because he's he's lost the election. But the article does make um, the administration look very good. I mean, competent, first, very competent. First of all, they shoveled money to the right people. They, you know, they, they offered Pfizer money. Pfizer didn't want it or need it, but Moderna did. So they got a few billion dollars from Moderna. Uh, they parallel processed a bunch of different attempts here so that if one company failed, the others might succeed. There was a sort of a Reaganite cutting of bureaucratic red tape, wherever they could. Uh, There were examples in the story of a drug company needing something, some supplies or or what have you. And they would call the administration and they would, you know, make it happen. And then finally the administration didn't do anything to, um, to kind of mess with the science, you know? Um, In fact, they describe how this, the, um, this new experimental MRNA technique that they used to generate the vaccine, they had the code for that within two days. They actually had the vaccine sort of printed, if you will, within weeks. And really what took all this time were the human trials, with, you know, the three-stage human trials, which the administration did not do anything to speed up. And probably the irony of ironies, the Supreme irony is there's a story, there's a there's a bit in the story, it actually begins with the uh, this guy Slowey, who's the head of the, Trump administration's effort to produce the vaccine. He actually slowed down the Moderna human trials by about three weeks because they weren't including enough minorities in the, you know, in the in the trial. And that cost him three weeks. If it weren't for those three weeks, Moderna's vaccine would have happened before Pfizer, and it would have come out about a week before the election. So you got to wonder, like Trump has got to be pulling out his hair about Um, What about 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 this twist of fate?
2: David, how does it attribute credit for warp speed? And I am going someplace with this. So I'm just asking you the question.
3: Well, I don't the article is not trying to attribute credit. They're just kind of describing the behind the scenes of of how Pfizer Moderna came up with their vaccines. And um, it just but but in in describing, you know, Pfizer and Moderna did the work of creating the vaccine, but in describing the ways that warp speed contributed, they did things that were only helpful and nothing that was harmful. And so in that sense, it made the Trump administration look quite good.
2: Yeah, I, I think the point is that uh, the Warp Speed folks, which is probably the least well-known working group working on coronavirus to the rest of the public, is because it was a lot of wonky insiders. It was a sign of almost proving the exact opposite of what Trump typically does, which is, you know, some idiotic, nepotistic leaning where it's his daughter or it's his son-in-law running around, um, you know, completely, ineffectively. You know, uh, doing something, um, where they become sort of front and center for taking credit. Um, in this case, it was just a bunch of policy wonks. You never heard about the project. We only know about warp right. speed because a handful of us have <laughs> talked about it. Um, and it, it turns out to actually have been good because they knew what they were doing and they do enough to, to not try to seek the credit and just got out of the way. I mean, it, it proves almost the antithesis of how the Trump campaign, you know, managed their time in the White House. <laughs>
3: Well, I mean I, I you have a point where you know I was kind of reading this article wondering, you know where was Jared Kushner because if Kushner knew about this, there's no way he slows down the moderna vaccine by three weeks. Um, I mean that might have made the difference right there and whether Trump wins or not. Can you imagine the effect on the election if the vaccine had come out one week before November 3rd?
0: Deci- I think Trump would have won decidedly if he had a vaccine or two out with 90 percent. but I think he had no credibility. Even though Moderna and Pfizer were saying late November, and he said the, va- the vaccines are around the corner, he, his whole tenure was based on so much lying. He was the boy who cried wolf. He's, he was the president who cried wolf. By the time he told the truth, and he was telling the truth about the I vaccines. <laughs> he, he, it was like, oh, my Lord. He, he told the truth in the final three months. Well, and- can I
2: can I give you the opposite, David, of that, which is that if Moderna basically says, "Hey guys, we have a vaccine that works for white people and a disease that's you know disproportionately." killing blacks and, you know, Hispanics and brown people, uh, Native Americans. Um, and all of a sudden, people are like, wait, what the fuck? Maybe they would have gone into Georgia and they would have just crushed them even more. And then you would have actually had the Senate flip too. So you could have had a whole kind of distribution of outcomes there in a different case, because you could have had an angry reaction as well. We, d- we don't know, um, I guess is my well,
3: point. Well, yeah, I mean, I-, I think it's ironic that an administration – that was constantly accused of white supremacy probably lost the election because they slowed down this vaccine trial group to include more minorities.
2: No, I know, but I think what we're saying is it wasn't the actual administration. It was somebody. <laughs> yeah. It was somebody you know, you know what we that actually that, knows what
0: they were doing. <laughs> we call that redemption in the movie when the person actually loses because they did the right thing. It's kind of redemption. Freeberg, when you look at these mRNA vaccines, you were educating us about them last night. um And also for a long time, uh, tell the audience just one more time how um, these work briefly and and what the potential for them is in the future. Because I think a lot of us now are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. This is going to be over. We're going to be at conferences or going traveling to Europe or whatever it is next summer. But we are, are all going to be scarred for life thinking, you know, when is the next coronavirus? Just like for a decade, we we were on pins and needles. When is the next 9-11? So this is going to be scar tissue uh, for a generation or two of people. When the next COVID comes, how quickly will warp speed 2.0 go?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the right question because um, our approach to doing vaccines may have just changed permanently. Um, so, you know, every cell has your DNA and DNA basically codes proteins, uh, every three letters of DNA makes an amino acid, uh, codes for a specific amino acid. There's 20 amino acids. The way that DNA turns into proteins is through RNA. So RNA is kind of like a mirror copy of your DNA. It floats into these things called ribosomes in your cells and outcome proteins. Um, and those, it's like a printer, right? And so those, those ribosomes make your proteins using those amino acid sequences, Coded by the RNA. So, the way that the um, vaccines work historically is you'll get a dead virus, which is basically the protein of a virus. Your immune system then learns to kill that or to re- that protein. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Jesus, my dog. Your immune system then learns to remove that protein from your body. Uh, and that's wh- how you develop this memory, uh, your immune memory uh, to a specific protein. And so they put this dead ar- vaccine, oh. virus in your body, and hopefully your immune system learns a good response to it. mRNA basically puts the RNA in your body that codes for that protein. Your cells then make that protein. And because it's making a lot more of the protein in a more consistent you know, way, Theoretically, the idea is your body develops a, a much more robust immune memory and immune response without it overloading your system where all the immune cells try and wipe that protein out right away and so on. The, the challenge is you're putting RNA in your body. And we've always been worried about we don't know what the side effects of mixing RNA in your body would be. Is it going to change your DNA? Is it going to change your genetic makeup? Is it going to cause other deleterious side effects? So this technology, this capability, this knowledge has been around forever. i mean, not forever, but for you know a long time. And the idea has always been we could use RNA in this way. But, you know, no one wanted it and we've used it in animals and we've used it in plants and we've seen the capabilities of, of using RNA to do different things like this. But um, this is a big leap. And so, uh, you know, we, we kind of leapt forward here of getting to the point that we felt comfortable with, you know, RNA as a, as a treatment like this and it's, um, it's working. So, in theory, in the future, as Sachs points out, you could take any virus or any bacteria, you could read its DNA, you could do that in an hour. Then you can take chunks of that DNA and code RNA for it so that your body makes those proteins that theoretically produce an immune response. So that that's the, the that's the science of like how do you how do you create a new I vaccine? Think an, I think that's
3: the amazing part is the way it's described. You know, in this article is that it's almost like laser printing or three D printing a vaccine. It's kind of like the equivalent of that. You just take the genome of the virus and you know, boom, you've got the vaccine, and then. All the other delay is about human trials and testing of it. But imagine if that there there was the next coronavirus is 10 times as deadly, you know, something that's as spreads as contagiously as smallpox and is, you know, as deadly as Ebola or something like that. We could have a vaccine the next day, you know, like you could we we could have a very very challenge
0: David would be as we'd have it the next day like we did here. But we would be going through this three-phase trial, and so I want to take a moment here and talk to Chamath about something, which is challenge trials. Um, In the UK, they will start doing challenge trials. For those people who don't know what a challenge trial is, essentially, they expose you to something dangerous, i.e. a virus like COVID, and then uh, they give you the uh, vaccine, and then they give you uh, the virus, as opposed to how we do a three-phase trial, which is you give... The, v- the vaccine to 30,000 people and a, and a placebo to 30,000. And then you come back three months later and see how many people got infected. And it takes time and money. Whereas challenge trials only take risk on the individuals who are part of it. Chamath, uh, hundreds of people in the science community signed a letter. And in the UK, they're going to be doing the first challenge trials in January. The United States is not doing these. I'm certain China is. Um, do you think it's a moment in time where we need to think, About the ethics and morality of challenge trials specifically. And then, if so, how do you execute them without, how do you execute a challenge trial without it being unfair um, or too dangerous for people? Obviously, you're not going to just go into a prison and say, hey, anybody want to get 10 years off the sentence, join the challenge trial. That seems morally bankrupt. But we let people climb mountains without ropes. So. Right
2: well i th- I think this speaks to a whole bunch of other issues that we've talked about on the pod before. You know another example of this was section two thirty before when we talked about it. We had a body of law that was created in a moment of time that essentially was about framing and understanding a specific pathway and a way to use technologies that today look archaic, and we have to rewrite the laws in order mm-hmm. to just Compensate and understand for where we are. So if I, if you double click on trials as an example, you know, if you have a solution for a rare disease, you can go in a specific pathway with the FDA and get breakthrough and fast track approval. But if you, for example, have, uh, you know, a novel immunotherapy cancer drug, you probably, you cannot, you know, you have to do a multi-phase trial, a typical three-phase trial. You have to solve for very typical things like fatigue, et cetera, et cetera. All these things slow progress down. Now, in a world where we were somewhat flying blind 40 or 50 years ago, we didn't have, you know, things like CRISPR, we didn't have, you know, a real understanding of the genome, um, we didn't have delivery mechanisms like CAR-T, you would say, okay, yeah, we should be really, really um, careful. Um, but I would say that the more you know, um, the more you can ease up on the rules because you can actually empower people with a lot of information, and it shouldn't take a disaster scenario for us to be iterative and experimental. So I think the challenge trial is really important. I think the concept of them make a lot of sense. I think a lot of government should employ incentives to figure out who is eligible and why. But if you're a healthy adult, male or female, and you want to participate in a trial for whatever set of reasons, um, you should be allowed to do so. And companies that want to run those trials should be allowed to run them. Similarly, if you want to find a complementary pathway through regulatory agencies to get drugs to the starting line, you should be able to do those too. And I think what we have to do is multipath path um, these compounds going forward, because I think that's where you accelerate all these technologies' ability to actually solve these diseases.
0: Freeberg, why is it so controversial that... Um, a rocket ship company uh, or, you know, uh, people who want to climb on mountains without ropes or or a rocket ship company, like there are experimental pilots. We have astronauts. They, they take unbelievable risk. We send thousands of troops into harm's way for many different reasons, uh, many of which sadly die. And they volunteer for those activities. Those people are volunteering and compensated. But when we look at science and we look at a challenge trial, scientists say this is morally reprehensible to compensate somebody for taking risk. When it, That's exactly what we do in the army. We do it with police officers and we do it with astronauts. H- help us understand how scientists think so differently than say war.
1: I, I don't know if it's scientists as much as it is, you know, a regulatory framework, like the some people would call it a nanny state. And, you know, there are things that the nanny state assumes individuals uh, don't have the capacity to understand the extent of the potential loss or the uh, or the nature of the risk. This is true for angel investing, right? You have to be a qualified investor to invest in a private company without appropriate disclosures. And uh, it's true in a lot of other contexts. So, um, you know, to, to give people the authority to make decisions like this, it seems like my, I'm, I have no point of view that I'm kind of making here, but it seems like the, 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 the government assumes or the, the elected officials assume or the populace assumes that there are things that people aren't really equipped to make decisions on because they can't understand the risk because they're not qualified. And uh, that and they get excluded from those activities. But Sachs is the... Uh, is yeah, Sachs, how should we reframe this? Stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think... How should we risk, frame it?
3: Yeah. I think assumption yeah. sort of risk is, is, a, is a really good principle and it, it is a way for people to engage in potentially... Harmful behaviors just because a behavior is is potentially harmful doesn't mean you don't get to do it um in the United States, you're allowed to do things that are manifestly harmful to yourself, like smoking well you know you assume even even
2: even worse if you're in Oregon, you can now do all kinds of hard drugs I mean you can assume that right. risk for yourself so you know if if in Portland, Oregon, you can now take heroin openly in the street with no consequence, but you can't participate in a trial that could basically cure a cancer. That's insane right. to me
1: I'll tell you I'll tell you the flip side of it um, you're allowed in Nevada to play roulette I mean what the fuck like you know it's got a negative expected value statistically factually for individuals but the individual doesn't have the capacity generally speaking that's playing roulette to recognize that every dollar they're spending at the roulette table is likely going to be t- t- you know taken away from them like there's some percentage of that that's going to be taken away there's a five percent for the house on that uh, on that game. And, um, and so we make the argument in some cases that people don't have the capacity to understand risk, but in other cases, it's okay for them to not have the capacity to, t- to, to take risk. And I think that there is this notion of what some people call regulatory capture that probably encompasses both of these, which is that there is some degree of profiteering that has created some set of laws that kind of manifestly capture that system in a certain way. So there are profitable casino enterprises that say, let's get people to spend their money in a risky way that they don't understand. And that becomes the law, and then people in Nevada are allowed to do that. There are also pharmaceutical companies that will say, we need to have huge regulatory burdens. So once we make that big investment and we get patent approval and we can lock in that drug, we can charge a lot of money for it. So I would argue to some extent that the regulatory capture associated with the profiteering that happens on the back end in pharmaceuticals has in large part driven the structure around risk taking in, um, in drug trials, uh, particularly in the US. I mean, you can go get whatever drug you want over the counter in Mexico, right? I mean, we have a very different system. Um, it's the but, most. Ex- it also happens to be the most expensive in the world, and the the rationale is: well, you're the most protected, right? Well, the drug the
2: drug infrastructure here has created, to your point, because of regulation, the entire um, you know CRO industry, which is a multi multi billion dollar industry, which basically is um, essentially a retardant of R and D velocity, right? Its entire job is to slow things down. Um, create these double-blinded studies. By the way, and ha- so many of these studies are not even double-blinded. They're not even actually scientifically rigorous. They get basically blown apart after the fact. So what are they really in the business of doing? It's because they're, ex- they're exploiting a business model that was created by laws, laws that were written by regulators, regulators that were in the hands of lobbyists. None of those folks truly understood at the time, but especially today, what's really possible. So, um, you know, it it does not make sense in the United States of America, just writ large, simply put, that you can buy alcohol and drink yourself into the ground, buy cigarettes and smoke yourself to death, you know, jump out Gamble away your money. Gamble away your money where you're negative EV or open, you know, openly do illicit drugs, but you can't participate in a thoughtful trial backed by scientific research.
0: In fairness, Jamath, you can- Get away with smoking fentanyl uh, in San Francisco and Oregon, but it is illegal to use that plastic straw. So be careful, folks. The laws (laughs) are very clear here. That plastic straw is going to get you in a lot of trouble. I don't know what the fine is, but it is... (laughs) Well, <laughs> I mean yeah, if it, it, it would it
2: wouldn't be so crazy if it were true, but to your point, like you would actually get arrested for having a plastic bag than
0: you will for having fentanyl
2: in, in San Francisco. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. They'll they'll arrest you for the bag that the fentanyl's in, but in- Chesa Bouden will not arrest you for the fentanyl in the plastic bag. Uh Sachs, we've totally lost the script, but uh Chamath sort of bridged this with the 230 um discussion of common carrier and Hey, you know, uh, we we had great intent with this law, but nobody saw social networks becoming this dominant, addictive, et cetera. So we need to be more nimble as a government in, in changing these regulations, whether it's straws, fentanyl, challenge trials, or 2:30. You wrote a blog post about it. After we had our 2:30 discussion, a lot of people started talking about it. Have you come to some conclusion as to uh, an exit ramp for 2:30 or a way to maintain it without? you know throwing the baby with the bath water yeah
3: yeah well okay just can, can i make one concluding thought on, sure, on this of course. last topic so the reason why innovation has happened so fast on the internet is because of you know one word permissionless right permissionless innovation nobody who has an idea for a startup needs to go get permission from someone in the government you know repeatedly that's really what makes a difference you know mark zuckerberg as a you know, sophomore in college can just build his project, Larry and Sergey as PhD students can just build their project, ship it, start, you know, getting users, and they don't have to get the permission of a regulator, whose incentive, by the way, is just typically not to get fired by approving something that might rebound on them in some, you know, in some bad way. And
0: to keep their job, yeah.
3: Keep their job. I mean, imagine if, you know, imagine just to take like a random example, when Elon launched Starman, remember when he put the, like, he he launched the Tesla into space and there's like a astronaut in there and it was like this kind of really cool moment. I assume he just did it. I assume he didn't get permission from anybody to do it, but could a moment like that have really happened if he did have to get permission? No way. It'd be like making its way up through the chain. No one would know what to think of it. No one would know whether they could be the one to approve it. And then what if something goes wrong? What if the Tesla comes back down to earth and, you know, turns into a meteor or whatever? Those are the scenarios that would be running through their heads. Nobody would have allowed it, right? And so when you just let entrepreneurs do things, like good things happen, right? And and that's why we've had so much progress on the internet. And in so many of these other areas, we've had much less progress because, you know, what, what a system like that selects for is your ability to go lobby regulators as opposed to just building your project and shipping it.
2: I think that, um, one of the things that maybe happens is that, you know, we, we're all expecting, or maybe some of us, I have definitely some version of a new deal and some grand bargain. And I wonder maybe whether the new deal and our sort of like our version of FDR over the next, I don't know, 10 years is the person that actually says, guys, we're going to have a wholesale rewrite of the regulatory infrastructure to account for technology. Just period. We're going to start someplace reasonable and small and we're going to make common sense reforms, just observing the times as they exist today. Right. And we're going to go and systematically try to make these industries a little bit more resilient, a little bit more entrepreneurial, you know, a little bit uh, less corrupted by regulatory capture and lobbyists and
3: laws that right. just don't make sense a yeah. hundred years later. I mean, it'd be great if we could do that. The reason we can't is because how do you reform the law without the lobbyists getting their fingers in it? Right? And, and the problem is, there's no, there's no lobbyist for the company that doesn't exist yet, right? For the founder, for the entrepreneur, who's got an idea in their head, but they haven't built their company yet. There's nobody representing that person in Washington, right? Mm. And what happens is, You get new regulations in Washington. Some agency gets created. They reach out and touch an industry. Now, every player that's affected has to create their own lobbying organization. Not true.
2: Not true. And David, what do you think about this? What if the the advocate for the entrepreneur or the uncreated company and uncreated product is really the same as just individual civil liberties and rights? How are they really that different? Because really what it's doing is saying – the entrenched organizational infrastructure that runs my life gets deconstructed, and then power gets pushed down to me, the individual. That's tantamount to the same thing, I think.
0: Well, we we have seen some
2: It'd we, we have seen some pushback.
0: It, but- well, I mean, I, it, there is some silver lining here. If you look right now, the citizens of California, uh, obviously, people have been fleeing, and we've been talking about California and and the one party system here causing so many problems. But we did have Prop Twenty Two uh, pass. And we now have 900,000 people have signed to recall Governor Newsom. Uh, and these seem to be some pushback against this sort of nanny state uh, where people can't make decisions. And then additionally, uh, today, the SEC announced um, that they will allow gig working companies to give stock to employees. As part of their compensation, up to fifteen percent of their compensation. In fact, uh, Hester, um, uh, how do I pronounce her last name? It's not Pierce. Um,
2: you can't pronounce the word Pierce. Purse, purse, <laughs> purse. No, it's spelled
0: Pierce. But Hester Purse is it worth following on the Twitter? H e s t e r p e i r c e. Hester Purse. I had her on my podcast this week in startups, and she. Um, they're, they're really getting aggressive in changing the accreditation law. So anybody's going to be able to be an accredited investor. you just become sophisticated through a testing mechanism. And now they want to let gig workers get equity. But by compensation. the way, sorry,
2: here's a perfect example of, um, a regulatory body and infrastructure that actually has changed with the times. I think the SEC, in, in fact, I've, I've, I think we maybe we talked about this a little bit the last time. I actually think one of the best Trump appointees has been Jay Clayton. Um, and I actually think Jay Clayton has done an incredibly good job. And a lot of what he's done is just deconstruct this kind of nanny state and say people can become educated and make good decisions for themselves. And because it's in some, it's in an area that's relatively benign, i.e. investing, people kind of just let it happen without a lot of pushback. And everybody kind of generally supports it. Democrats support it. Republicans support it. And the outcomes are really good to your point, Jason, which is in a world of zero rates, how do you expect any just you know, average, ordinary, middle American who just works a decent job to save for their retirement, to actually make enough money. Well, they're going to have to get educated, and they're going to have to find a way of putting their money to work in in, uh, in assets that have a better return, which literally was illegal up until very
1: recently.
0: Yeah, and I mean, so we, you, you were have si- any- you were systematically letting the rich stay rich, and you were blocking the poor from having an yeah. opportunity to advance. Like, what if Apple Store employees could get their paycheck and say? I want to take my paycheck, 70% cash, 30%, you know, restic- restricted stock units at this discount. Like we could let Apple store employees make, you know, a million dollars after five or 10 years of working there, 10, 20 years from now, and have generational wealth change. David Sachs, you had comment.
3: Well, I was gonna ask you, Moth, do you think this type of deregulation is gonna happen in the Biden administration? Yes. Because what you're discussing is like a very, really kind of classical Republican or Reaganite idea, right?
2: I, I agree. And, and, and I think what's going to happen is you're, I think you're going to continue to see deregulation in areas that are, um, benign and non-controversial. So I think the SEC, um, the FCC, I think all of these places you'll see movement. Um, I think you'll probably actually see a lot more choice. Um, and deregulation effectively in, um, uh, in Medicare and CMMI. Um, I think those places will move first. And then I think it'll be up to some leader politician to then really rally the troops on some higher order bits. Um, and one of the biggest higher order bits would be sort of around the broader healthcare infrastructure, um, social security, uh, education, but education. Education is probably the biggest one. That's, that's like the, It's just too sacrosanct for the Democrats. You cannot get elected without the teachers. And so unless there is a startup that completely disrupts teacher pay and Mm. teacher compensation, um, then the public school teachers unions will continue to dominate a lot of the federal and uh, state policy for the worse, unfortunately.
0: Freeberg, if you had one um, regulation or series of regulations or regulatory body, you would most like to see change for the good of humanity and you know Americans and, and the rest of the humans on the planet what would it be
2: to listen to the rest of the podcast search for all in with Chamath Jason Sachs and Friedberg available across all major podcasting platforms